Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lumello. My guest today went to Yale, was a first-round draft pick of the Dallas Cowboys, and went to four Pro Bowls. He was the first Cowboy to rush for 1,000 yards and was a Super Bowl champion. He played for three NFL teams and was part of some of the most accomplished backfields in NFL history. He also averaged 26 points a game in high school basketball, but isn't even close to being the best player in his family. And he played a role in one of the most critically acclaimed comic strips of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Calvin Hill. Calvin, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good. It's good to have you on. Um, Calvin, so you, you were born and raised in Baltimore and then ended up going to Riverdale Country Day in the Bronx be, before your years at Yale. Tell me about growing up in Baltimore in, you know, kind of the 50s and, and early 60s. Um, were you, a, you know, were you, you know, kind of playing all different sports? Were you a Colts fan? Who, who were your, you know, kind of heroes at the time? And, and tell me about growing up at that point. Yeah, well, I grew up in a little section uh, outside of Baltimore called Turner Station. Uh, and Turner Station was a uh, an all-black neighborhood uh, across the river, across the creek from Sparrows Point, which was a, a, a big steel uh, mill at the time, Bethlehem Steel. And, and most of the people who lived in Turner Station worked at Bethlehem Steel. It was a, a blue-collar uh, community uh but pretty insulated uh you know we had um you know we had we had doctors and you know we had various people who lived in that community this is during you know it was a pretty segregated um you know Baltimore was still pretty much segregated um but it was a you know a very self-contained uh place that I grew up in and uh you know from yeah, you know, I'm an only child. Um, my father did not work at Bethlehem Steel. He was a construction worker, and my mother was a homemaker. I'm, I'm the only child, and so I, I grew up in a, you know, in a pretty insular, um, you know, black neighborhood, um, all black neighborhood that was very comfortable. Uh, I, you know, you knew everybody. Uh, you knew people based on, you know, what part of Turner Station they lived in, or what church they belonged to, or, you know. You know, my father, uh, who had come, you know, had migrated from the South uh, in the 30s. Uh, you know, I was not born until my, my father was 40 and my mother was 39. Uh, and I tell people, you know, I'm I'm not under any sort of assumption that I was planned. I just ha- ha- accidentally showed up. Um, but he was a big, you know, he and he was not able to get an education uh, in South Carolina where he grew up. In fact, you know, when he married my mother at the age of 20, uh, he was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. She taught him how to read and write. And once that light, light bulb, you know, came on, he became a huge uh, fan of of education. Was very involved, uh, you know, making sure that his only son, uh, you know, would, you know, would not grow up not knowing how to read and write and to take advantage of uh, the things that education. Uh, provides. Uh, he, you know, he, he he was very active in the PTA starting in the first grade, um, and uh, you know would always be first in line for the PTA meetings with the teachers for the personal meetings, and he would mm-hmm. always drag me along and, and 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 want me to be there. And 
you know, I can still hear him. You know, my name is Henry Hill, and this is my son. You know my son. And you, and, and I want you to tell me what I need to do to help you uh, educate my son. So, you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, in a very comfortable environment. Uh, you know, we were, you know, we weren't rich by any means. You know, we were, you know, it was a blue-collar neighborhood, but uh, I had everything that I wanted. And uh, more importantly, I had the love and support of my parents. Okay. Uh, my two sports uh, were were baseball and I played some basketball. I was not really, you know, skilled necessarily in ba- basketball. I was athletic. Uh, right. But, you know, my sport was baseball. That was the sport that, uh, you know, that I, I was good at. And that was a sport I played a lot of. And, uh, you know, and that was the sport that my father, uh, coming up from South Carolina, he, I don't think he had ever seen a basketball game or, you know, up until I started playing, he'd never been to a football game, but he knew baseball. And, uh, you know, we, uh, he was a big, you know, Brooklyn Dodger fan. Uh, and, you know, we'd listen to the the Dodger games on, on radio. And then when the Orioles came to town, uh, you know, we, you know, he'd take me out every now and then to, to see the Orioles play. And so, you know, growing up in Baltimore, I was a big baseball fan. I rooted for the Dodgers. Uh, I rooted for the Yankees. I, I started rooting for the Orioles. Um, and then, of course, you know, you couldn't grow up in Baltimore and not be a, a Colt fan. I was a huge Baltimore Colt fan. Uh, you know, Lenny Moore and Big Daddy Lipscomb and Jim Parker and John Unitas and Raymond Burry and, and Alan Amici. You know, uh, you know, those were my heroes. Sure, sure. And and I and I had read that with regard to Jackie Robinson that um, – that you read somewhere that he ate his peanuts whole shell and all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, you know, Madison Avenue realizes something. They started realizing it very early on that, you know, you know, kids, uh, you know, idolize, you know, athletes. And, uh, I, you know, I thought I read that Jackie Robinson used to eat his, uh, used to eat peanuts, you know, shell and all, you know, he just eat the whole peanut. And and for years, that's the way, you know, I ate them because Jackie Robinson ate them that way. You know, my I father, love, you know, uh, you know, liked the fact that I idolized Jackie Robinson because, you know, Jackie to him personified so many virtues. And he liked the fact that Jackie had gone to college, you know, had gone to UCLA and, and was 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 exceptional in that in, in that way. Um, and uh, it was only I met Jackie, you know, um, Probably you know, later on, uh, you know, in his life, mm-hmm. and you know, I mentioned that, and he 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 looked at me with a, a you know a look of amusement, and you know, and uh, you know, and let me know that you know that was not true, that he did not eat his peanuts shell at all. Uh, <laughs> so you know, but you know, hey, I was willing to if Jackie, if it was good for Jackie, it was good for me, and you know, that speaks to the uh, to the model that you know the modeling that you know that athletes uh and and you know it speaks to the uh you know to the platform that they have uh, they have lots and lots of power and especially with young kids yeah that, that's a great point and then and so and then and then you go to riverdale which is up in the riverdale section of the bronx how, how did that happen how did you go from baltimore to riverdale and and tell me about your experience at riverdale well, you know, it was interesting because, you know, my, my father and mother, uh, you know, 
were you know preached you know academics and 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 education. So I was a good student, uh, you know, for starting from the first grade until the eighth grade, and uh, you know, but but I was very very con- you know content where I was growing up. You know, I mean, I was in the eighth grade, get going into the eighth grade, and well, in, in the eighth grade, and and you know, I was a good athlete. I got good grades. Uh, I was uh, you know getting ready to go to high school and uh, uh, to senior high school. And so, you know, and I was starting to like, you know, the opposite sex, and I had my eye on a couple people in my community. Um, (laughs) So I was very, very, very content. And then one day I walked in uh, to the house and, you know, seated in in our kitchen um, was our family doctor, uh, a man named William Wade, Dr. Wade. And he's letting us know... uh, about a scholarship opportunity at a school called Riverdale, uh, a prep school, uh, a boarding school up in New York. And it's just a wonderful opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, to, to, to really get a great education, to be exposed to a, you know, a lot of different things. And I think you should go for it. And I want you to think about it. And so I said I would. And I was sitting uh, having breakfast. My mother was preparing breakfast uh and, uh, you know, she asked me, she said, well, have you thought about what we talked about yesterday, you know, the, the opportunity to you know, to apply for the scholarship, to go for the scholarship? And I said, well, Mama, I thought about it. I don't want to do it. You know, you know later that day when we were having dinner again, my father, uh, you know, we, he said, as soon as she said grace, he looked at me, he says, well, have you thought about what we talked about last night? And as I was about to say, yes, I have, and I don't want to do it, um, I didn't even get the words out before he said, well, I'm glad you thought about it because we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, I started to protest, but my mother was standing right behind my father. She put her, 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 her hands, her fingers over her lips. And that was a signal not to say anything. Uh, because, you know, once my father made his mind up, there was, you know, I didn't have a vote. And afterwards I said, mama, you know, she said, well, listen, your daddy's made his mind up, but you know how he is. And so, you know, uh, like I said, I didn't have a vote, and uh, you know they, my mother and father had both votes, and so you know it was on to figure out you know what 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 the logistics were, and uh, about two weeks later, uh, Dr. Wade had arranged with Riverdale to send the entrance exams uh, that I would have to pass before I I, I could qualify for the scholarship. And so, you know, the day came and uh, my father, you know, got off work early and I met him at um uh, at the guidance counselor's office. But then he started to editorialize a little, um, you know, really talking to my father and explaining to him that, you know, Riverdale was a pretty sophisticated place and the kids there were, you know, were upper middle class. They came from Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue and, you know, Scarsdale and you know and you know it was going to be a different environment for me um uh, and you know he explained that you know of course you know Dr. Wade you know his son is there but he's a doctor and uh I think he even may may have said Mr. Hill you know you're you're you know you're a blue collar worker and as he was you know editorializing my father sort of cut him off and he, you know he 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 said listen you know we're not here to get your permission to take that test he's going to take that test um, and he's going to pass that test. We're not worried about that, and we're not worried about how sophisticated, you know, that place is. He's going, you know, whatever it takes to to be successful, he's going to do it. 
So just tell us where to, you know where, where, how to take the, where to be and when to be there, and right. uh, and and you know and I, and I remember as I was sitting there listening to you know them talk, I I said to myself, well he's sort of putting us down relative to you know the other people at this school, and my father has stood up for not only himself and me and my family, but I, you know I felt proud of him, and so I got a little fired up then. Uh, and you know that's when I really wanted to uh, to you know to to show them that you know that and you know when when I walked out I was very very proud of my father for sort of speaking up not only for himself and my mother but also for me um, you know and I remember um, when we walked out of you know the guidance counselor's office my father looked at me he says you know that man is supposed to be an educator. And uh, you know, he said something to the effect that you know he doesn't have the good, he doesn't have the sense that God gave him. And uh, you know, hey, you're gonna you're gonna pass that test, and you're gonna go to and get that scholarship, and you're gonna do well. And so that's when I was on board, so to speak. And uh, you know, and, and and so you know, I took the test and and passed the test. Was awarded the scholarship, and it was a a moment of great uh, you know achievement. Um, <laughs> And you know, so it was a big deal. It was, it, it was. Uh, I'd won a scholarship to go to a prep school in New York, and the neighborhood was proud of me, and blah blah blah. But then it came time to go, and uh, the closer I got to New York, uh, the more uh, discombobulated I became emotionally, to the point where when we crossed the George Washington Bridge, I started tearing up. I started crying, mm. and um, when we got on the West Side Highway going up to Riverdale. <laughs> You know, I just started telling my father, you know, I don't want to do this. Let's turn around and go home. And, uh, you know, he he sort of calmed me down and blah, blah, blah. And I got there uh, scared to death. Uh, I was, um, you know, I was assigned a a guide. Um, uh, you know, I was in the ninth grade. Um, another kid in the ninth grade, a guy named Peter Loeb, was assigned to show me around. And his first question to me was, where was I thinking about going to college? Uh, and I understand, I was in the ninth grade. He says, I'm going to Brown. I had never heard of Brown. I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and uh, But, you know, I, my mother told me just to keep my mouth shut and my eyes open. And that's what I did. And ultimately, it worked out, you know. I mean, but I was, I was a, uh, you know, I mean, you talk about a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I mean, I was totally... Uh, scared to death, but it worked out. It worked out. Um, I was introduced to, you know, to football. I was introduced to a lot of things that I probably would not have been exposed to had I stayed uh, in Turner Station and you know in Baltimore. Sure, and and so you you excel in in basically all athletics. You're an honor student. <clears throat> it's coming time to to pick a school. Uh, yeah, but- I mean, you know, I I, I um, you know I was a Parade Magazine All America. Uh, my senior year and although we were you know you know we were a little you know we were a prep school uh we were very good in football we had an excellent uh coach um a guy named frank Bertino, who's you know i mean we had a it reminds me i was just reading about uh arch manning and, and he goes to a, a little private school down in new orleans but yeah. you know they they play very good football it's called it, you know, and I've heard of the school. Um, oh, Newman. Newman, and 
and Riverdale was the same. We, you know, when I graduated, we had won, you know, we were undefeated for 51 straight games. We had one tie in that period. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was getting letters from all the big schools. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, Riverdale was a prep school and the, uh, you know, I started to, you know, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, momentum, uh, you know, for me to consider, you know, Ivy Leagues and some of the Eastern schools. I ran into one of the assistant coaches, uh, a man named Alvin Perrier, uh, who was uh, the uh, the offensive line coach, a great coach, one of the best coaches I've ever been around. He was also a dorm uh, proctor, and he had graduated from Yale and was, uh, uh, you know, getting his Ph.D. at Columbia. And... Uh, you know, he was explaining to me the Ivy League, and he said, you know, if you're interested in the Ivy League, I think there are four schools you really ought to really look at, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and Dartmouth. And uh, um, and he had gone to Yale, and he said, if, and if you're interested in Yale, uh, I would love to uh, arrange for you to visit Yale. And as it turned out, he arranged for me to visit Yale that next weekend. Um, but I had a wonderful two-day weekend. Uh, Yale played Dartmouth, and uh, it was the first time I'd seen the Yale Bowl. Uh, and you know, th- that particular day, they, you know, the Yale Bowl had about sixty-five thousand people. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Yale won, and uh, I just had a wonderful weekend. The next day, uh, I had signed up for an interview. The director of admissions was, you know, had, was interviewing at Riverdale, and uh, I, you know, I interviewed. I had been up, and we talked a little about the Dartmouth game and my experience. And that Tuesday, uh, they posted grades uh, behind, beside the names of the students who had interviewed, and I got an A grade. And that meant that, you know, I got an A rating, which meant that all I had to do was apply. Uh, but, you know, people would ask me, well, where are you going to go? And I was, you know, I was telling them, well, you know, I may I may go to one of the bigger schools, you know, the big, you know, it was kind of heady, you know, that, you know, I guess it was my ego. Yeah. And I remember one of the teachers, he was head of the upper school. Uh, he asked me where I was going to go to school. And I think I mentioned, well, I might go to, you know, Pac-10 or I might go to the Big Ten. Yeah, he said we exist to get people in places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and what an honor it is, you know, that you, and you know, surely you, you know, and I think I was a little intimidated by him, uh, <laughs> but you know, I had a good time, and so Yale it became, you know, I mean, anybody who knows anything about football in this country understands the impact uh, that Yale had uh, on the development of football. So, you know, it was kind of, you know, I, I like the fact that. Uh, you know, I'd gotten in. I was gonna, you know, have an opportunity to be a part of a great tradition, uh, and uh, so you know, it, Yale it was, and uh, uh, you know, it, it was it was a wonderful four years for me. You yeah, know, they I, you come in as a quarterback. <clears throat> they also bring in Brian Dowling, who the two of you combined to have some just amazing years together. But Dowling ends up being the quarterback. They try you at tight end. They try you at linebacker, and then you become a running back. But you're you're both of you are able to catch and throw and run. You throw six touchdowns at Yale, <laughs> even though you never played quarterback. 
you know, Harvard had had a black quarterback, a guy named John McCluskey, who graduated the same year I graduated. He graduated from Harvard the same year I graduated from, from Riverdale, from high school. So Yale had never had a black quarterback. And so, you know, that was intriguing, the opportunity to be the first black quarterback. Uh, and uh, I lasted, I think I lasted two snaps uh, my freshman year. Freshman didn't play varsity, but my first practice, they moved me from quarterback and they moved me to linebacker and they moved me to third string fullback. Uh, and so, you know, we had a six game season and for the first four, well, the first three games, I didn't play at all on offense. I was just a linebacker. Um, and it was very frustrating, uh, you know, to, uh, to me, um, and, uh, you know, I was not necessarily happy, um, you know, about, you know, the switch, um, and, uh, you know, that and, and the trauma of realizing I wasn't the smartest guy at Yale, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, that first, you know, four or five weeks at Yale, um, you know, was, was, was a tough period, um, you know, just trying to find my way ac- athletically and to find my way academically. And uh, finally, before my fourth game, um, they 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 put me uh, in at, at fullback, and I, you know, I, I had a chance to. Uh, I think I scored. It was against Dartmouth, the Dartmouth freshman. And then the next week we played Princeton, and I started, and uh, I had a really good game. Um, you know, probably the best game I've ever had in my life. Uh, and then you know we 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 finished out the season against Harvard, and we we beat them. So you know, it started to, to uh, I started to find my place, so to speak, at Yale. Sure, and and your last two years, you guys go sixteen one and one. <clears throat> Obviously, yeah. famously, the last game is the well, as the Harvard guys would call it, the twenty nine twenty nine win for Harvard. Um, but you guys have an amazing amount of success. You're nationally ranked. Oh, by the way, you're the Ivy League long jump champ in track for a couple of years. Um, and you set a triple jump record. So, you know, you're, you're playing even more than just football. Um, and on campus at that time is a guy named Gary Trudeau, who starts up a, a cartoon strip called Bull Tales. And Brian Dowling would ultimately feature in a lot of his Doonesbury strips down the years. You were actually in it a few times. I'm just curious what your thoughts were on that. Well, you know, it was interesting because, you know, the, the, the Yale team, um, really captivated the campus as we started to get, you know, as, as we started to, to, you know, have enjoy success, uh, we started winning and, you know, we started winning big and it sort of culminated. Uh, uh, we had not beat Princeton had sort of ruled the Ivy league Princeton and Dartmouth, and we hadn't beaten Princeton in four or five games, uh, four or five years. And so there was a big push to beat Princeton and, uh, my junior year and, you know, we we beat Princeton. We had lost one game, the opening game, my junior year, but we rolled through the season, and then we beat Princeton at Princeton, um, and we clinched the Ivy League uh, uh, champion. And uh, you know, Trudeau. Uh, you know, I, I don't know when he started the cartoon series. It was a you know editorial cartoon series for the Yale Daily News, and. Essentially, uh, it's you know, bull tails. It, you know, it, it was a huddle. It was a football huddle, 
and uh, you know he the, the participants in that huddle uh, were you know I mean I was you know I, there was a a character named Calvin uh, there was one um, named B D after Brian Dowling uh, he was the quarterback in the huddle uh, there was one uh, named Tree uh, and Tree was after uh, a teammate of mine, a classmate of mine named Bruce Weinstein, who was a really big, big tight end. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, uh, you know, the, 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 the huddle, uh, were, you know, were discussions of issues on the campus, whether it was co-education or the war uh, or academics, uh, you know, all the, all the issues that, you know, kids, you know, that were rolling campuses at the time. Um, uh, you know, we would discuss those issues uh, in the, in the huddle, and uh, you know the, the you know the comic strip became very popular. Uh, uh, you know, on campus, you know, you'd buy the you'd get your copy of the Yale Daily News just to see what what was happening in the huddle. Sure. And uh, and what what Trudeau was doing, and then it was picked up. You know, I think throughout Connecticut uh, by other newspapers. And uh, you know that became the beginning of of of, uh, you know, of of his success. I mean, you know, and I, I read it today. I mean, I, I read it yesterday. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, Doonesbury is uh, probably the most critically acclaimed comic strip of all time. It's just amazing. Yeah, that yeah, of- yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he's, he's he covers a lot of issues um, today. Uh, Oh, yeah. You know, national yeah. issues, international issues, and uh, uh, but it started, you know, uh, around uh, you know the football team, and you know there are um, there are characters uh, even today, uh, you know, from time to time he'll do an academic issue, and you know there's a I forget you know the president of the university's name, but it, it he's modeled after Kingman Brewster. Uh, you know, there is a chaplain who was modeled after William Sloan Coffin, uh, who was the chaplain at Yale. And you know, BD continues to be a, a character. He does he does a he he does a wonderful job. Uh, but you know, I mean, uh, you know, Gary Trudeau uh, is a genius, and he's you know he continues to to, um, you know, to be spot on on a, on a lot of issues. Yeah, and then and then you leave Yale. And you get drafted in the first round, not something a lot of Ivy Leaguers get. You get drafted in the first round by the Dallas Cowboys. And they too, like Yale, are thinking, you know, tight end, linebacker, something like that, because you're big. For a running back, you're very big. You're six foot four. Um, but then Don Perkins retires and Dan Reeves gets hurt. And all of a sudden, you're a running back. And your rookie year, despite being injured halfway through the year and nobody really knowing exactly what it was, you, uh, make the pro bowl and you're voted rookie of the year and you come just short of a thousand yards. Tell me about that, that first year with like Tom Landry and the Cowboys and tech Schramm and all that. Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, unlike today, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't publicized the draft. So I knew the draft was occurring, let's say on Tuesday. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure, you know, how, you know, when it started and, you know, and then I just waited, you know, around, and about an hour later, I got a call uh, from somebody purporting to be from the Dallas Cowboys. It was Gil Brandt. And, you know, Gil had sent me a couple of letters saying that if I was, you know, if I was available, they would draft me. But, you know, the Cowboys, the Cowboys sent four or five guys that same letter at River, at, at Yale. 
Sure. So I assume that they sent four or five guys at Yale that letter. They probably <laughs> sent 10 guys at Michigan State or Ohio State. At any rate, so I thought it was a gag. Um, and, you know, I was going along with the with the gag uh, until Tom Landry got on the phone and welcomed me to the Cowboys. And it was something distinct, distinctive about Tom Landry's voice. And all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute, this could be the real deal. And I, I couldn't believe it. They, You know, they were saying I was drafted in the first round. And, you know, it was just, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. And so it was just a, uh, you know, you're talking about a shock. I wanted to make sure I was in great shape, so I stopped. You know, I, I didn't run track my senior year, and I started lifting weights for the first time. Uh, mm-hmm. I discovered the mm-hmm. weight room in, in the Yale gym and uh, wanted to be in great shape. Uh, and uh, so, you know, when when the appropriate time came, it was on to a Thousand Oaks, uh, you know, for the Cowboy training camp. You know, rookies showed up a week earlier. It, it was a little... Uh, intimidating uh, you know I mean you had guys from all these big schools you know Michigan and Purdue and Ohio State and you know all the big schools and there I was from Yale uh, uh, you know but once you put the pads on you know and you get out on the field uh, it's it's all about competition uh, but the week was interesting the first week um, I uh, you know they didn't know where to put me um, and so, you know, my first, uh, the first week I was there, um, you know, I would work at linebacker and let, let's say tight end. Uh, in the morning, I might work at tight end, and, and, and in the afternoon, I'd work at linebacker. They weren't quite sure where to put me. And uh, and then, you know, we, at the end of the week, we had a, a scrimmage uh, at the Oakland Coliseum against the Raiders. They're rookies, so we we fly up to uh, to Oakland, and you know there are thirty thousand people, uh, you know at the at the at the scrimmage at the Oakland Coliseum. They were all there to see Roger. You know, most of them were from the Navy. Sure. Uh, you know, and and I, I remember they were introducing us, you know, through the goalposts, and I was behind Roger, and Roger gets introduced, and the place goes ballistic. And then the guy pushes me out, and I said, "Well, I'm waiting to hear my name." He said, "They've already introduced you." So you know, <laughs> I was introduced to the the hoopla of you know people still cheering for Roger. Uh, <laughs> but I went out, and uh, you know, in that particular scrimmage, I you know they they had me playing running back, uh, and I'd only worked out for one practice at running back, and I didn't know if I was getting a handoff or getting a pitch, and so I played you know one half at running back and one half. At tight end, and uh, you're talking about a guy who was totally confused. Yeah. Uh, and then after that game, I went. Uh, I went to the. I left that night to go to the, the college all star game in Evanston. Uh, yeah. By the time I got back to Dallas, um, you know, Dan Reeves was still having problems with his knees. He was the incumbent at running back, and uh, his, uh, the second string running back was a guy named Craig Bainham from Georgia Tech. And Craig also was having problems. He'd hurt some ribs. And so, uh, you know, uh, I get back and, I'm, you know, the first two or three days I'm working at tight end and, and linebacker. And we have a, an, you know, the second ex- exhibition game is against the uh, the 49ers at Kezar Stadium. And 
we played, I think we played on a Saturday night. And I go to practice that Thursday, and they tell me I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be playing running back in the game. And uh, so I'm going to take all, all the practice at running back, and I'm going to start at running back. And I was just shocked, you know, because I didn't know the place. I didn't, sure. you know, I still didn't know if I was getting a handoff or getting a, uh, a pitch. I didn't know any of the blocking schemes. I'm waiting for that game uh, and walking through the tunnel at Kizar Stadium was like, you know, going to the, um, you know, going to the guillotine. I mean, I was just nervous, nervous, nervous. Um, sure. And, uh, and I remember a guy named Tony Lissio. Big tackle. He 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 looked at me and could tell I was nervous. He said, "Don't worry, just follow me." And uh, I I followed him and Neely and and Nolan and everybody else and and ended up having a pretty good game. Yeah, you, you must have done something right because because uh, in your years at Dallas, Tom Landry and and obviously you had to deal with a bunch of injuries. But in your years at Dallas, Tom Landry said that he might be the, talking about you. He might be the best ball carrier I've seen in 20 years of pro football. I mean, that's well, not a good, you know, but... yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny that rookie year, uh, you know, it was, I still didn't know what was going on, but it was, you know, it was a lot of instinct and, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating because, uh, you know, against the Redskins actually, um, in the, I think it was the ninth game or the, it was the ninth game or the 10th game. Um, I hurt my foot. I, I was shifting. And when I landed, I, I landed wrong, and I, I, you know, I could feel my, my foot. I hurt my foot. Didn't know what it was. Um, and uh, at the time, you know, going into the, uh, I guess going into the tenth game, um, you know, I had about a 200-yard lead on Gale Sayers. And uh, you know, I mean, things were going really well. And uh, but then I hurt my foot. And you know, missed a quarter of the Washington game. Ended up missing. Uh, I think I the next game I played a play, uh, and then the next game was against the Rams, and I played a play. Um, and they thought I had a jammed toe, but as it turned out, I had a fracture in my foot. Uh, with five games left in the season, I think I gained a hundred and hundred and twenty yards or something. I had to change my style. I mean, I've seen a couple of doctors since then for other things, but there, there were things that I had to do because how my foot uh, was affected, um, and it changed, sure. I had to change my style. Um, but it was interesting. The rookie year, I couldn't believe uh, I, I was carrying the ball a lot more than I had carried it in, at, at Yale, and uh, you know, we were enjoying success. Uh, my, my rookie year, we were, I think, we were eleven, two, and one. So we won a lot of games, you know, we, we were winning and football was big in Texas and it was the big leagues. And, you know, I was playing with guys like Bob Hayes and, and, you know, Bob Lilly and Chuck Howley and, 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 you know, Roger Staubach. And so it was, it was very heady, you know, I was yeah. getting paid to do something that I'd done for free. You know, right. I couldn't believe it, getting paid. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was, it was really heady. And, and in your six years in Dallas, you go to four Pro Bowls. Your team goes to two Super Bowls. You you have to deal with a bunch of injuries kind of throughout. You know, it was interesting. I, you know, I got I, I got hurt my rookie year. And then my next year, I hurt my back. As Tom Landry says, well, we're going to sit you down, you know, but your performance level is fine, so don't worry about your job. 
and a guy named Dwayne Thomas comes in, and I never get a chance to play really uh, again that season. Right. Maybe four or five games, and then the next year I start off with a bang. I, you know, we played Buffalo, I think it was, and I had four touchdowns uh, in that game, and you know, and playing real well. And then in the fourth game, I um, it's a Monday night game against the Giants. I, I you know I tear my knee up and I miss seven games. But I come back. I come back and 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 play really well for four games, going into the uh, the, uh, the championship game against uh, San Francisco. We beat San Francisco, you know, for the opportunity to go to the Super Bowl. And I and I I hurt my knee again. It, you know, as it turned out, uh, you know, it, it it was never you know it was hurt the the first time. Yeah, you had uh, torn your ACL, right? Yeah, I told my well. You know, I, I, it was a sprained knee. They said. Okay. Uh, and then I heard it. You know, when I heard it in the championship game against San Francisco, uh, you know, after the game, uh, you know, and I'm I'm very upset because it meant that I wouldn't start in the Super Bowl against Miami. Uh, and you know, I'd look forward because I didn't play a lot in, in the game against the Colts the year before. Right. And uh, so you know, I, I play a little bit, um, and. You know, I'm getting ready to move back to Baltimore. I'm a little frustrated, uh, and I'm getting ready to move back to Baltimore. And they, um, I go to give them my, you know, my change of address to let them know that I'm moving back and uh, where I'll be. And they tell me that they had me scheduled. Uh, it was like my wife and I were getting ready to move. We were going to drive back on a on a Saturday morning. And I go in Thursday to tell them, that, you know, that I to give them a change of address. And I never forget. They tell me, "Well, you need to go talk to Coach Landry." I go to talk to Coach Landry. He says, "You know, we have you scheduled for an operation on Monday." And I said, "For what?" He said, "Well, we think you tore your cartilage, uh, and we thought that you know, you, you that's what what had happened in the uh, you know in the fourth game of the season. But you know, when you got hurt again, your leg locked." And I got upset, and I said, "Well, how come nobody told me that I had torn my cartilage?" Yeah. And uh, they were telling me it was just a sprained knee. And so I didn't get, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I told them I'm not going to let you operate on my knee. And I drove back to Baltimore and I went up to Yale and I saw a doctor at Hopkins. And I think I may have uh, you know, seen another guy in Baltimore and they substantiated what the Cowboys were saying. So a month later, I flew back and uh, had my knee operated on Um uh, and you know, I had problems with that knee for you know, you know, for the next three years. Um, you know, I, I would get all kinds of fluid, et cetera, and couldn't practice sometimes. Um, but I, you know, I ended up playing three more years in Dallas, and then when I went to Hawaii in the World Football League. Uh, Wait, and if I can interrupt I for one second. Oh, by the way, those three years where you were getting fluid on the knee, you went to the Pro Bowl every year. I mean, you had massive yeah. success. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I went to the Pro Bowl every year, and and actually, uh, the the fifth year I made All Pro, um, um, and I, you know, I'd, so I, I'd made All Pro my rookie year, and I'd made All Pro um, my fifth year, um, and uh, the uh, but you know, uh, yeah, so I had you know, uh, you know, I had decent years, although, you know, I, I missed some time that last year. Um, uh, you know, before I left to go to Hawaii. But anyway, to get to when I took my physical in Hawaii, um, 
I was going into my seventh year of pro football, uh, and I'll never forget the doctor, uh, when he did the knee exam, he said, uh, when did you tear your anterior cruciate? And I said, what's an anterior cruciate? And he showed me, and he explained to me, uh, you know, you know what it did, and uh, he asked me if you, had you had any problems, and I told him I'd had some problems. Um, and you know, he he asked me what, what you know what what was I doing to rehab, um, and I told him the things I was doing, and he says, well, those are the worst things you can do when you have an unstable knee uh, mm-hmm. or instability in your knee. And so you know, but you know, I uh, uh, you know they never told me uh, in Dallas about the. Uh, you know the anterior cruciate, um, and I, I, I subsequently asked somebody about it, and they they said, "Well, you know, we couldn't do anything about it, and you would have just worried about it." So you know that that happened my rookie year when I found out I fractured my foot. Uh, you know they didn't. You know they told me I had a doctor there told me I I, I had a uh, an astroturf toe, and it was only when I saw a an outside doctor. Uh, Lance Rensel was married to Jory Heatherton, and she had a podiatrist because she was also a dancer. And I went to see her podiatrist, and he's the one that diagnosed my my foot my rookie year. Right. Jeez. You know. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I I told Grant, my son, you know, he had some of the same issues with his his ankle. Uh, Right. And, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, you know, it depends on who, who, who you're seeing, you know. But... Um, yeah, I was able to play the three more years, and and uh, I had you know I you know, I had real you know problems with the knee. Uh, you know, I had to get it drained almost every Friday, and and, and maybe 140 cc sometimes. Jeez, and in in those Dallas years, um, as I mentioned at the opening, that running back room at different times, but 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 certainly all together for a few of those years, it's you, it's Dwayne Thomas. Uh, who is kind of famously not talking to the press or his teammates, uh, or so that that's what I've read. Walt Garrison, um, oh, Robert Newhouse, and Dan Reeves. Like the, n- n- all yeah. five of you weren't together, but it was like three and four of you at any given time. What what was that running br- back room like? Um, was Dwayne talking to you guys, or what? And it was just the press he wasn't talking to, or what was that all like? Well, you know, I mean, Dwayne didn't talk a lot. Um, you know, I mean, he talked. You know, we we understood, you know, he was upset because, you know, he, you know, he, you know, Dwayne Dwayne discovered that um, he, as a first round choice, had signed a contract that was less than the, the, the two second round choices, Bob mm. Asher and Margin Atkins, and that's when he got upset, I think. Sure. Uh, when he realized that he was making less money than the guys who were drafted behind him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he went from being the most gregarious guy you'd ever, you know, to to not talking at all. But in in the room itself, uh, you know, it was all about uh, understanding, um, you know, what you were doing. I mean, there was lots of communication in terms of, you know, you know, how we were gonna. I mean, I, you know, as much as any place I played. Um, you know, we it was a real academic running room, uh, you know, running back room. Uh, you know, we uh, we typically never met, uh, you know, by ourselves. So we you know we we always met in conjunction with either the offensive line 
or we met with the other receivers because in the passing game, you know, we were essential, uh, you know, we were a part of the passing game and we needed to understand exactly, you know, what we, you know, what we were doing and why we were doing it and how we fit in. Sure. Um, and uh, the same thing was true in the running game. So, you know, when we were discussing the running game, uh, uh, you know, and watching tape, uh, I'm sitting in a room with, you know, with Rayfield Wright or with Blaine Nye or, or John Nolan. And, you know, we're, you know, I, I'm letting them know what I'm thinking, and, and they're letting me know what what they're thinking. Yeah. You know, can they hook a guy? Can they take him full on? Uh, and so there was great, great communication and coordination. And you know, the one thing I will say is, uh, you know, Danny uh, was a real student of the game, and and you know, he became a running back coach. Um, you know, he, he was a player coach, and. You know, Walt and and House and and Dwayne and and myself. You know, we were all uh, you know trying to understand the game intellectually and why we were doing certain things. And, sure. Uh, you know, a lot of times you were doing something to influence uh, to help somebody else, and that was that was key. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I look I look at football today, and you know, you look at a team like like New England, uh, and why are they you know why? Why do they continue to be so successful, and especially on defense? And you know they they bring they lose a piece and bring in another piece. And I think you know it's because guys understand exactly what they're doing and how they fit into the whole. And yeah. it's a coordination. Uh, and the smart teams are the ones that typically win. Yeah. Well, and and you and you mentioned. Um, I'm I'm curious in, in terms of like the team when you guys won that Super Bowl. You know, in addition to having in-house, you know, guys like Roger and and Bob Lilly and Jethro Pugh and guys like that yourself, you also bring in Herb Adderley and uh, Forrest Gregg and Lance Allworth, you know, a couple big name guys coming in towards the end of their career for sure, but obviously still big contributors. What was that dynamic like in the locker room? Well, you know, it was great. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, You know, Lance, uh, I mean, Lance was a, it was just a an extreme competitor. He had lost, you know. He 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 didn't have the blazing speed, but he was just a ver- super super competitive guy, uh, and you know, great hands and would block, uh, would you know, could do everything. Um, you know, the guy who had probably the the biggest impact on our team, in my mind, uh, and 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 I tell people all the time, I don't think we would have gone to you know either one of those Super Bowls. Uh, <clears throat> except for the leadership that he brought to that team. And that was Herb Adderley. Mm. Um, Herb Adderley was, was uh, you know, he just had a charisma, uh, you know, that was infectious. Uh, and, you know, he, uh, you know, he had a confidence that was infectious. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the first time uh, – he was traded during during preseason. He was traded to the Cowboys, and you know he. Uh, we're back in Dallas. We're back from from Thousand Oaks, and we're back in Dallas. And at at the meeting, um, you know, Coach Landry says, "I want to introduce Herb Adderley. and Herb stands up, and I didn't even realize he was in the room. Uh, and he stands up, and it was almost like. Um, there was a beam of light shining on him. I mean, he, and you know, he, he just looked like a Hollywood guy and, you know, he, he had, 
he had, you know, he had two Super Bowl rings. And I didn't realize you got a, a ring for the Super Bowl. Yeah. And he was wearing both rings. And, you know, and it looked like somebody was shining a light on those rings. He must have polished them up or something. <laughs> and, uh, and and I'll never forget, he stood up and he had those rings on and he looked like a movie star. And somebody says, you know, show us those rings, Herb. And he flashed one of the rings up. And, uh, he, you know, he and, and I, that was the first time I realized you got a Super Bowl ring. And uh, he flashed, he flashed, you know, he, show, he he flashed one of those rings up, you know, to show it to us. And then he said, he said, he said, and and this is the Dallas score because they had beaten the Cowboys in the championship game to go to the Super Bowl. Right. But then he says, but don't worry, I'm gonna help you guys get one. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, you know, but he just brought a a charisma. Uh, 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 you know, a, a, a kind of leadership that was just, and, uh, you know, and he, you know, in practice, you know, a, a guy, he worked hard. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, w- w- you know, it's fascinating. Rayfield Wright, who just passed away, yeah. uh, Hall of Famer, uh, you know, Rayfield became, you know, we started calling Rayfield Little Herb. It's almost like Herb adopted Rayfield. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and, you know they they spent time together and 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 Rayfield became an all pro. He was a can do guy. Uh, he was a can do guy. I never <laughs> forget in an exhibition game I fumbled and you know I was running off the field with my head down and Herb ran and he said don't worry keep your head up keep your head up we're gonna win the game and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something and sure enough he he recovered a fumble or something and you know it was just but the guy was just you know. I think one of the untold stories about, you know, us going to those first two Super Bowls and transcending, uh, you know, the, you know the, the team that couldn't win. You know, we were known as next year's champions. But yep. you know, the, the one guy who, uh, you know, if anybody is single-handedly responsible, uh, you know, I think it was Herb, and and that's a, that's an unknown story in my mind. That's uh, fascinating. I, yeah, I didn't really. I mean, obviously, I knew he was a good player. He wins five titles with Lombardi and the Packers, but I, I didn't realize. Oh, just, just, you know, it, it's funny because I, I've seen guys like that. Um, it, it, you know, and I know when I went to Cleveland, I tried to you know provide some leadership. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, but but I look at, you know, you, you look at a guy like Ray Lewis. Uh, you know, and and the, and the leadership he provided. You know, the you know the Ravens. Or yeah. you know, I think I think of Michael Irving in Dallas. Sure. You know, I, I mean, one of the things you know, I don't think people realize we were three and zero when Michael you know hurt his uh, his neck in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and you know, the, you know, the, the team was in the wilderness for a long period of time after that. You know, I mean, Mike for all the things that that you know, you 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 know, I mean, one of the reasons uh, you know maybe the Cowboys got off kilter was. You know some of the things that you know involved Michael, but the guy was an unbelievable leader in that yeah. locker room. Yeah. And uh, you know the uh, you know you, you you talk to people about about Michael Jordan, uh, and you know the the kind of leadership he provided. Uh, uh, you know you can't you know you 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 can't minimize you know the importance of 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 a leader of a voice in that locker room. Yeah, I, mean, I look at I look at Golden State now, and 
you know, they have, you know, but, you know, you look at Green and his role. Uh, he doesn't score a lot of points, doesn't get a lot of rebounds, but, you know, his voice and his leadership is just something that you can't, you know, you, you can't deny. Yeah. I remember talking to Burt Glylevin on this interview uh, maybe three months ago, and he was talking about that, that Pirates team in 79. He said, we just rode Willie Stargell. You know, he was just the oh, guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's funny. I went to, yeah, I remember uh, um, in 74, I went up to Pittsburgh. I was represented by an attorney, a tax attorney in, in Pittsburgh. So I went there to, to, to see him. He also represented Franco and, mm. and, uh, and you know, he, he represented Franco. He represented Darren um, uh, on the, the defensive end. Uh, oh, L.C. Greenwood? Yeah. Anyway, so I'm there, and uh, I, I get in contact with, with Frenchie Fuqua, sure. who I knew from, from Baltimore, from Morgan State. Sure. And he takes me over to Willie Stargell's house. Uh, and, you know, this is, you know, I mean, and Willie is, uh, you know, he was a wine connoisseur. He had a wine cellar. Mm. And I remember, you know, going to his house and... Uh, you know, there were there were a host of pirates there. This is before you know the we are family. I mean, right. it, it 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 hurt me because they beat my Orioles. Right, you know, right. And, and I think '79. But yeah. you know, Willie was like the Pied Piper, and 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 Day Park. I, I think Day Park. Well, it wasn't Day Parker. It was the pitcher who said he he pitched the game while he was high. Oh, Doc uh, Ellis. Doc Ellis was there. Um, the little catcher uh, Manny uh, Sangoyan was there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Al, Al Oliver was there. Sure. Uh, Fu, Fuqua took me there, and Willie was explaining the guys, you know, how you drink wine, and <laughs> how you're supposed to, you know, to, to to you know to flip it back on your palate. And but you know he was just you know just a great leader. Frank Robinson was the same thing with the Orioles. Right. Uh, you, you get a great leader, and um, you know they. Uh, yeah, you know, they they can they can be a player. Sometimes it's a coach, uh, and Herb was that for us. I mean, you know, no question. Uh, That's cool. He uh, he brought just a a tremendous. Uh, uh, you know, when I think of Herb, I, I, I you know he, he I, I think of the first time I saw him. He had those mutton chops, and he just looked like he was from Central Casting. Yeah. To, to rescue the Cowboys. <laughs> That's so funny, and 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 after you go to Hawaii, it's obviously a short stay. You get hurt after like three games, and then the WFL folds. You you come back to the NFL. You come back to the Redskins. So you've, you're playing for these legendary coaches: Carm Kaze at Yale, Tom Landry in Dallas. Now you're playing for George Allen in Washington for a couple of years, and your role is different. You're not running the ball as much, and that running back room is you and Larry Brown, who's a star that I don't think gets enough recognition. John Riggins comes in uh, from the Jets and Mike Thomas, who didn't have a long career, but he was like rookie of the year and rushed for a thousand yards a couple of times. You guys are all in the same backfield. What, what was that team like? Well, it was, it was, it was an interesting team. It was, you know, I mean, George, I mean, George was uh, a fascinating coach, a, a great motivator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the one thing that, you know, that George, you know, George didn't believe in the draft. You know, he, he used to say, uh, why should I draft a bunch of guys who we don't know if they can play and pay them money? I'd give you guys the money. 
And so, you know, he, uh, you know, he had a, a bunch of guys who they call them the over the hill gang. And sure. he wanted guys who knew how to play, uh, who wouldn't make mistakes on offense. He had a very simple offense and it was predicated on not making mistakes. Uh, he had, you know, he, you know, he had a bunch of guys, you know, who who understood how to play defense and understood their relationships with uh, with one another. The mm-hmm. inter, you know, inter uh, inter dependence of of eleven guys. Sure. Um, and uh, I mean, one of those guys. I mean, you know, I'm 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 sad because he was a friend of mine and, and just a great player. Brig Owens just passed away. Uh, yeah. uh, but you know, you, you had guys like you know Brig Owens and Kenny Houston and Pat Fisher. Uh, you even had Jake Scott, and, right? Pardon me. You even had Jake Scott in there for a year or two, right? Oh yeah, bro. Oh. I mean Jake Scott. But guys knew how to play. Yeah, they understood. You know, and they could make adjustments on their own. Uh, and they understood how they were covering for one another. I mean, you know, you know Ron McDowell and, and Talbert and sure. Chris Hamburger. Yeah. Uh, I mean, guys who just knew how to play. And then, you know, he he believed in great special teams. Uh, I, I remember when I got there, uh, he was showing me around Redskin Park. He showed me uh, a lounge, a beautiful lounge that had, you know, it had a, I mean, this is back before you had, you know, you, before you had cell phones. So, you know, typically you had a couple pay phones in the locker room. But the special teams lounge, they had two or three, you know, the phones that only special teamers could use. Huh. And and George, you know, George turned to me. He says, you know, most teams, uh, guys play on special teams, you know, because they, they, they're not starting. And they want to get off of special teams. Here, we, we make, you know, the special teams are special. They're the Marine Corps. They get hmm. an, an established, you know, field position. And uh, and we appreciate that. And what you realize with George is that he believed in great defense that could create turnovers, that understood how to play. Uh, he believed in great special teams who would establish field position. And he wanted an offense that wouldn't make mistakes and turn the ball over and give up the field position. And... Uh, you know, if you stood by him, I remember the first exhibition game, I stood by him, and he wanted me to, to see. And it was, you know, it was three and out, three and out, three and out. Nothing nothing exciting was happening uh, in terms of, 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 of either offense. But, you know, after you know, maybe half a quarter, the, the, full, the, the field had tilted. Right. And instead of, you know, the offense being on the 30-yard line, it was on. It was. It was. You know, mid court, midfield. Sure. And that was because of special teams. And uh, you know, he uh, he had a very simple offense. He he didn't do. We did, you didn't do a lot of, you know, you know changing of the play, et cetera, because you know th- that could, you know, that could you know, ch- cause a mistake. He didn't want you to fumble or throw an interception. I think right. that's one of the reasons, Jurgensen. I mean, he loved Billy Kilmer because Billy, uh, you know, was a. Uh, you know, a pretty simplistic quarter. He's a tough guy, great leader, yep. and you know he wasn't gonna, you know, he he wasn't gonna fumble the ball or or take a chance. Right. Uh, you know, Jergy sometimes would you know would throw it in there because you know he thought he could get in there, he could get it in there because of his arm. Sure. I mean, yeah, he could throw the ball, uh, but you know George hated hated turnovers, 
hated fumbles. And uh you know, and but he was a he was a sensational motivator too. Um uh, and uh he was a player's coach. Um uh, just a great, great coach. I enjoyed playing for George. Yeah. And 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 tell me about some of those running backs, Larry Brown, John Riggins. I mean, what were those guys like? Well, you know, I mean, Larry Brown, Larry, you know, Larry and I were rookies together, and we, you know, we were friends. Sure. Uh, you know, Larry was probably as tough a coach, tough a running back as I've ever been around. Hmm. Um, we had a guy in Dallas, Murray and Barber. They called him, the, you know, he just passed away, the, the Barbarian. Sure. But you know, but but Larry was was a hundred miles an hour. Uh, you know, Riggins, what people don't realize about Big, Rick, John, John was, John was a lot like Dwayne in my mind. Uh, you know, had, had real quick feet, uh, was a, a strong guy, but he, you know, he, he, he really wanted to understand what you were doing uh, and, you know, what your strengths and weaknesses were as an offensive line. Okay. And, uh, you know, you know, when, you know, I mean, he, he flourished with the Hawks. Uh, when you know when Joe Bugle came here uh, with Joe Gibbs, and uh, you know you know established the Hogs. I mean they you know that was one of the great offensive lines in professional football. You know probably uh, exceeded only by the Cowboy line uh, of the nineties with with Emmitt. Uh, you know, but you know but John and John was a deceptive, uh, strong running back. You know great strength below his waist. Great strength in his legs, and he was explosive, you know, and deceptively fast. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Mike Thomas. Mike Thomas was a jitterbug. Right. Uh, you know, he uh, he you know he initially had gone to Oklahoma uh, when Greg Pruitt was at Oklahoma. Oh. And, you know, I ended up playing with Greg up in Cleveland, and yeah. Greg said the first time he met Mike Thomas, Mike walked up to him and said, "I'm gonna take your job." <laughs> Greg said, "I just gained eighteen hundred yards," and this guy's talking about taking my job. But he had great quickness, great, uh, great feet, great quickness, uh, and was very, very athletic. Uh, uh, you know, really um, didn't really take care of himself. You know, he, um, you know, as you said, didn't have a long career. But I think a lot of that was. Uh, you know, unlike Riggins and, and Larry, uh, you know, Mike, uh, you know, spent a lot of time down in Georgetown, and you know, that can catch up with you. Sure, sure. And and so then, so you're two years with Washington, and you you basically retire because yeah, I retired because, well, you know, my my first year I was coming off a knee that I'd hurt in Hawaii. Sure. Um, and. Uh, my second year in Washington, I really worked. I worked very hard to, uh, you know, I, you know, my, my, I worked my, my second year and didn't didn't play as much as I thought I, I should have played. I was really ready to play my second year, and you know, and then, you know, my, my the third year, I, um, I, I, you know, I worked even harder in the off season, and um, you know. You know, I, I either it was either you know I, I wanted to play. I you know I wasn't gonna, you know I wasn't interested in just you know coming in on third downs or whatever. And mm-hmm. the first exhibition game we played Minnesota, and I looked in the huddle when I was out there, and I didn't recognize anybody in the huddle. <laughs> and you know I, I I was a little upset. Uh, the coach was a guy named uh, 
uh, Joe, uh, um, what was Joe's last name? Uh, had played for the Giants. Why am I blanking? Oh, Joe Walton. Joe Walton. Joe Walton. Yeah. And you know, and and I and and it just dawned on me that I was probably going to have the same kind of year, and right. I just said the heck with that. I put it too much in to, uh, and so I just wanted to play, and uh, so I retired. I just made a spontaneous decision to retire. Uh, went and talked to Bobby, and you know, Bobby was a new general manager. Bobby Bethard. And, uh, Bobby Bethard, and. You know, and you know he, you know he said, well, let's not make it to, you know, let's let's not do it. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll continue to hope keep you on the roster. And uh, and then I talked to uh, to uh, the, you know, the then coach uh, Jack Pardee, and I played against Jack, and you know he was surprised too. But I, you know, I, and I remember driving back from Carlisle uh, and thinking, what am I going to tell my wife? You know, I had, we haven't discussed this, but. You know, I uh, and, and so I, I, you know, I, I stayed out for that preseason, and um, and ultimately they put me uh, on re- on retirement or whatever it is they do. You know, they do uh, to make it official. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was invited to a game by uh, by you know, by Bud uh, by Buddy Young. Who was okay. working for the league? He and his wife invited me and my wife to a Colt game, a Colt Miami game, and uh, and you know during the game, Buddy looks at me. He says, "You still want to play?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "I can say I can tell the way you're in. You know, you you know you're reacting. You know, you you still are into it." And uh, I, he made a call to the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, and uh, and they're. Running back coach, the coach was a guy named Sam Rigigliano, but their running back coach was a guy named Jim Garrett, Jason sure. Garrett's dad. Yeah. And you know, Jim had been a scout in Dallas when I was first drafted, and then he went to New York, and you know, we competed against his teams uh, when I was in Dallas. And then when I was coming back from the World Football League, he was a coach in New Orleans with the Saints on, on Hank Stram's staff. And so when I went up to visit, uh, um, to you know, to visit the Browns, Jim, I spent my time with Jim, and you know, Jim said, "Man, you got to come here." And uh, and, and I played there for uh, four years, I think. You know, although, you know, I didn't play as much. I played a lot my first year because Greg Pruitt was hurt, and uh, Mike Pruitt had not come on. Uh, and then you know they changed, you know the. They changed the rules, uh, and you know Cleveland became a with Brian Sight, you know became a we became a passing team with Sam, and I became a out of the backfield guy and uh, became captain of the team, and that was kind of you know and we, we, you know the the team um, the team started winning, um, and uh, you know we were in a division with Pittsburgh who had dominated the the seventies. And so you know, and the city was going through a uh, a tough time, but they, they the, the city rallied around the team, and so it was a good time to be in Cleveland. Uh, you know, the you know the cardiac kids they called us. And uh, yeah, so well, I lived there those four years, and I can tell you when you came on and Lyle Alzado came in, and and even Joe Delamalure came down from Buffalo. Yeah, like, Joe D. Yeah, 
Those, you three, and they draft Ozzy and they draft Clay Matthews, and everything changed. And yeah, we didn't win a Super Bowl, but man, it was fun for a couple of years there. Sam wins Coach of the Year a couple of times. Sipes the yeah, MVP. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you 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 lived in Cleveland. I mean, when I first went there, um, you know, the city, um, had, you know, was just emerging. You know, it, it had come very close to bankruptcy. Yep. Uh, you know, there was a huge. Uh, I mean, you know, the city was not together in the sense that that the business community was was at odds with 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 the municipal government. Yeah, uh, they tried to recall the, and, governor, the mayor Dennis Kucinich. There was a recall. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and it, you know, there was a huge recall, and um, you know, the, you know, the mistake by the lake, so to speak. And all of a sudden, the football team started doing well. And you know, I tell people all the time, you want you you want to you want to see great football fans, you go to Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, irrespective of the weather, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, you know, in 79, we started winning and, you know, we, we, we you know, you know, Ozzy was there, uh, you know, Mike Pruitt started playing well, you know, Brian, uh, I mean, it, it was fascinating. Uh, we played against the Colts in 1978 and, uh, we were struggling, um, and Ozzy, you know, told me they were warming up. Uh, they had a, a second-string quarterback uh, from Miami of Ohio. I'm trying to think of his name. They were warming him up. Oh, could and it have been sudden, Mark Miller? Mark Miller. Mark Miller. Yeah. And uh, they were warming him up. And all of a sudden, sight got hot. I mean, I caught a couple touchdown passes, and you know, uh, but he got hot. And... Uh, and, you know, and it got to the point where, you know, offensively, you know, I mean, with, with Reggie Rucker and with Ozzy and with Dave Logan. I mean, Logan, I tell people that Logan, Dave Logan uh, and the guy I played with in Dallas uh, named Billy Parks had the best hands I've ever seen in my life. Just mm. great, great hands. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just felt like uh, – you know, it didn't matter. You know what the score was. If we had a, if we had the ball and one last chance to, you know, at bat, we we could score. Yeah. And it didn't yeah. matter who scored. Um, didn't you know? It, it could be Greg. It could be Ozzy. It could be Ricky Feature. It could be Dave Logan. Uh, it could be me. Uh, even Mike, who had no hands whatsoever. Uh, but you know, he caught a bunch of passes one year. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, and you know, and, and the city was on fire uh, behind that team. Uh, it was so much fun. I went back and looked. So the cardiac kids in in seventy nine and eighty in those thirty two games, twenty four, twelve each year were divided by were decided by seven points or less. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. Twenty four yeah. out of thirty six out of uh, thirty two games um, are divided are, are decided by uh, seven points or less. I mean, every week was just gripping. And oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we we just felt. I mean, you know, Sam was, you know, Sam was a riverboat gambler sometimes, yeah. and sometimes he, you know, but you know, we we felt if we had a if we if we had an at bat, um, you know, somehow, uh, you know, we we could we could score a touchdown. I mean, I'll never forget, um, um, you know, going into those huddles. And just looking around and said, "Hey, I don't know who's going to do it, but one of us is going to do it." Uh, and you know, and that was the beginning. 
Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it was really the beginning of of, the, of you know that '79 season, going into that '80 season, and you know everybody talking about the Cyper Bowl. We didn't even call it the Super Bowl; it was a Cyper Bowl. Right. And yeah. you know, Brian Sipe had you know had an MVP year that 1980 season. Yeah. And uh, except for you know one, you know one situation down on the goal line when. Everybody says Cockroft should have kicked the field goal, and we go, we you know, we we get ready to go to San Diego to play them, and we we could have beaten them, um, you know. But we against Oakland, um, uh, I forget, you know, he tried to throw a crossing pad into Ozzy. Yeah, and I remember I remember hearing the line afterwards. Uh, I mean, I I totally agree. It should have kicked the field goal, damn it. But um, I remember. Uh, apparently Retigliano says to Sipe, if it's not there, throw it in the damn lake. Yeah. And yeah. He except, it was there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was designed to, uh, you know, it was designed, for, it was a crossing pattern, the lay pattern to, um, to, to Dave Logan. Ozzy was clearing, you know, it was a crossing pattern. Ozzy was clearing, you know, clear, you know, was crossing going to his left. And right. Logan was a it was a delay pattern. They ran a bump and run, and and uh, as it turned out, you know, Ozzy ran too good of a pattern, and momentarily looked like he was open, and uh, Sipe thought he could squeeze it in. And uh, the very play, the very kind of play I mentioned, George Allen would would have hated, right. you know. Uh, and so you know that, that that you know that that you know that was just I never forget that you know just a moan in that stadium when that happened. It was surreal. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was it. Um, you know, the cold, one of the coldest days ever. And, uh, yeah. you know, we were looking forward to going to San Diego uh, to practice. And as it turned out, that was it. Good. You know, uh, you know, you, you never put your, you, know, you don't want to be tempted in a situation like that. We had Cockroft, who was at that point, the most accurate kicker in the history of the National Football League. And uh, you know, on third down, you just line it up, and if it's not if it's not a good snap, you line it up again and let him kick it. Yeah, oh, so frustrating. But what an amazing couple of years you had there. I mean, you you all of a sudden you're you know catching a lot of passes out of the backfield. You scored 18 touchdowns, um, and you know were part of that like revival of that team. It was uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. I have to say, having been there. Um, well, yeah, and you know the thing that was great for me. Is you know my you know, my I was a captain for the for the you know for three years I was elected captain um, and you know I, you know I, I won't I won't say I was like her but I was able to um, you know because you know it was interesting there weren't a lot of guys uh, when I got there who who I knew I mean I think Reggie and Reggie Rucker and Ozzie Newsom and Greg Pruitt uh, were among maybe three or four guys that I actually knew, you know, because Cleveland had been had not been, as Bob Hayes once said, the Cleveland of old. They'd had some tough years, and sure. so they weren't necessarily uh, playing a lot of national games. And so I was coming from, you know, based on my, you know, playing for the Cowboys, and then the Redskins, you know, were. You know, even though I didn't play a lot, you know, but they were a team that were on TV a lot. And people, so you know, I had some credibility with a lot of the young guys, especially. And 
and I saw a lot of talent there. And you know, I was able, as much as any place I had been, to to you know to to become a a leader. Uh, and you know, I can remember the first game I got there. We were playing Pittsburgh uh, in '78, and Pittsburgh, you know, had won. Uh, I think they were. Uh, about to win their fourth championship, or maybe you know, but they had been dominant in mm-hmm. that in that division. And you know, I remember telling guys, uh, somebody said, "Aren't you a little nervous playing Pittsburgh?" I said, "I've never lost to Pittsburgh." <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's you know, it, I mean, you know, you and and guys, I, I think sort of reacted to that. You know, some of the younger guys. You know, Ozzy once told me that. Uh, you know, one of the things he tried to do when when in Baltimore, uh, you know, they they knew they had a young guy, uh, you know, in Ray Lewis, who had mm-hmm. some real leadership ability, uh, but they were able to bring in, you know, Shannon Sharp, and uh, uh, what's his name uh, uh, from Purdue, uh, darn the, the defense. Oh, Rod Woodson. Uh, Rod Woodson. Rod Woodson. They brought in Rod Woodson and Shannon Sharp. And you know they were able to mentor uh, Ray Lewis on leadership, and you know I think that's important. Okay, so so the one question I have is, you know, here you are with your you know NFL career that that goes uh, you know thirteen years or twelve or thirteen years. Uh, you you obviously hold track records at Yale. You you scored over twenty five points a game in basketball. When did you realize that your son could take you in one-on-one? <laughs> when did that happen? When when Grant passed you on the hoops court? Well, you know, it's interesting. He, uh, you know, he, he he got involved in AAU. Uh, you know, I was flying back from, I'm not sure where. I was sitting next to a guy, and you know, he started talking about his son had played in AAU. Uh, the 12 and under, mm-hmm. and they had won the, the national champs, the national tournament, and the AAU tournament 12 and under. And I'd heard of AAU, but I wasn't aware of AAU football, uh, AAU basketball, mm-hmm. in the tournaments. So, uh, and he gave me his card, and 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 and, and you know, and told me that. Um, you know, that Grant should try out. You know, Grant was gonna. His son was graduating to the 13 and and under, uh, you know, team, and they're gonna have tryouts in Fairfax County. And so Grant was playing, you know, neighborhood ball, if you will. It's, you know, every Saturday morning, um, you know, there were neighborhood teams in Reston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I said, well, that sounds like a you know pretty good deal. And uh, he'll try out. So he tried out and made the team, the Northern Virginia Hawks. And uh, I thought it was exciting that he'd made a team that represented, you know, primarily Fairfax County, but Northern Virginia. And uh, they would play, uh, you know, they were they were going to play in a regional tournament. It was the Potomac Valley AAU tournament for the right to go to the national tournament. And so I thought it would be, you know, interesting, you know, that he'd be a part of that. Now you got to understand it was Grant and a bunch of suburban kids, and 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 and, and you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, they'll probably lose to the team from D.C. or the team from Prince George's County, blah blah blah. But it's a, it's it's a nice experience. Well, lo and behold, they they won the tournament. Mm. They had a great coach. Then they go to the national 
tournament in St. Louis, and they win that. And uh, and Grant makes all tournament, which was tantamount to making thirteen and under all all America. Right. Wow. So you know, I was excited for him. When we get back to, back home, one day you know he's out dribbling the ball, and I said, "You think you're pretty good, All America? Think you can take <laughs> your old man?" He said, "Yeah, let's play." And so we went over to the to you know to the schoolyard, uh, to the high school court, outdoor court. And he beat me in a, in a, you know, a game to 20. And so the next time I said, well, let's play again. You know, cause I, I you know, I'm, mean, he's 13 and I'm forget how old I was at the time. I was probably, you know, 38, 39, but I was in pretty good shape at the, at, the, at that point. And, it, you know, and I hadn't tried too hard. I mean, I thought I would just beat him right away, but he beat me. So the next time, uh, I said, well, let's play another one. He beats me again. And, uh, you know, and so I played one more game. And, you know, he, he drives. And for a moment there, I thought about, you know, you know doing a hard foul right. on him. And pushing him into some bushes. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. He's my son. Right. I said, you know. I can't, I can't, you know, and so I, I just decided that that was it, you know. He he had surpassed me, and, you know, he talks about the fact that when he beat me, it shocked him too. You know, it, you know, all of a sudden he could beat his dad, and that yeah. was that was a pivotal moment for him. So it was, uh, it was the, uh, it was the summer of, he was 13 and under, so it must have been 85. 1985. I realized that I had better not engage him in any athletic because he he had surpassed me. <laughs> That's cool. That's a great story. Um, well, Calvin Hill, I have to say it has been a pleasure talking to you, hearing about uh, you know growing up in Baltimore, your years at Riverdale and Yale, and and obviously throughout the NFL and the anecdote about Grant at the end. Um, I found it. I found a quote that I just thought was fantastic. Uh, it was Kurt Gowdy talking about you. And he said, Calvin Hill didn't just run over tacklers. He jumped over and at them with the same zest and style of a tie cob in football cleats. <laughs> and, and while he's voicing that over, there's pictures of you like leaping guys and legs first. It was just, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun watching the old clips. So, um, yeah, well, you know, it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm now 75 and I could feel it, you know, I mean, I tell guys all the time, I tell Zeke, you know, when I was doing some consulting with the Cowboys, stay on the ground. You know, that, all that jumping and stuff, I mean, make good, you know, but I, I can feel it now, you know. Right. In fact, Larry Brown, you know, the last time I talked to him, you know, we both agreed we should have run out of bounds. <laughs> Calvin, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. Okay. And you take care. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Dreaming. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like. Life is like. Life is like what it is.